Hey guys, it's Emma and Shannon. And welcome back to our podcast, She's an Engineer. Thanks for joining us this week. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we have learned in the past year. So this is a series with our previous episode, our FAQ episode, and then we're going to have one more episode in two weeks, which is our two-year anniversary episode, and we're going to talk about goal setting. But in today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've learned in our first year of medical school for Emma and first year of working for me. And I'll just hand it off to Emma to talk through some of the things that she's learned. Yeah. So I think like one of the main things that I've learned in medical school is like how to interact with patients. Like, of course, I had interactions with patients previously when I was like volunteering and doing other things like that. But I think it's very different when you're the one providing medical care or like taking their history or providing them with like recommendations, basically. Like Mm -hmm. you feel... I think there's like much more pressure when you're doing that because when you're volunteering, there's like not much pressure. What you're doing is you're probably like bringing them to a room or providing them with some food or, you know, getting them a blanket and things like that. But you're not actually like responsible for their medical care. And although Mm -hmm. they don't put us like in charge of patients' medical care necessarily, we are still responsible for like getting the majority of the patient information and doing all of the physical exam correctly, things like that, especially in the like the clinic setting, in the student clinic setting where we have much more responsibility because it's like basically run by students and then we have one faculty member that comes in at the end and we like present the information to them. Yeah, actually one follow-up question regarding that. So as an engineer, I think most of my impact with the public is a little more indirect, Mm -hmm. Um, but now you're transitioning from that indirect relationship to a direct relationship with the public, and I just was wondering how that made you feel now having like a much more personal relationship with the people that you're working with. I actually really like it. I like like seeing that I have an impact on someone's life. Mm -hmm. I think you can get a lot more information and you can gain a lot more and learn a lot more from people when you're having a like a one-on-one interaction with them that's not to say that like in engineering we didn't have that type of interaction with patients or we didn't have that same amount of impact it's just like you're impacting people's lives in just like a different way But Mm -hmm. sometimes it's I think it's more satisfying to see Mm. when you're actually able to like help someone more immediately, if that makes sense. It's like you're not really like watching the cars go by on the road and like being like, oh, these people are really impacted. They are very impacted when like the highways are fixed and things like that. But I feel like. I feel like the public itself doesn't appreciate it as much because it's Mm -hmm. not like their life is at stake. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, or their health is at stake. But I think the the public generally has more outward appreciation for healthcare workers. I will say that. In engineering, though, since I did bioengineering, we did have 
patient interaction. But I think that the interaction was much more like beneficial to the engineers than it was to the patients. Mm, Okay. Because they were helping us like basically evaluating the design of our product. It's not like we were like giving them the product and being like, I mean, we were giving them the product and we were like, would you use this? Like, what would you improve about this? But it's like, they were helping us more, I think, than we were helping them at that point. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that made sense to everyone that was listening. But yeah, I think medical school is a lot of learning how to like ask people questions and getting all the information that you need from them and knowing like exactly like what to ask so that you can get so you can come up with like your diagnosis and your treatment plan. A lot of it is more bureaucratical and like organizational based than I like originally had envisioned. So especially with the student health clinic, like we we obviously can't do everything for the patients. Like we can't take blood work, things like that. We can do a basic physical exam. We can take vitals. We can take heart rate, blood pressure, things like that. But a lot of our work is actually like figuring out like what they need and like what other specialty appointments they need, like actually at like the hospital or you know, at a primary care provider's office and like making those appointments for them. So Mm -hmm. it's really important for us to like get that sort of information so that we can help them the best we can and, you know, really get them all the appointments that they need at that time because we don't know if or when we're going to see these patients again. So, yeah, I definitely think but, uh, but again, like, we're still students, so interactions with patients are still a learning experience for us as well. So I think we're getting as much, if not more, out of it than they are mm-hmm. at this point yeah, in time. True. But I hope that as a physician, like, my patients will get more out of <laughs> my interactions mm-hmm. with them than I will. Yes. Yeah. So I'll say the second thing that I've learned in this past year is using like outside resources when used correctly, like outside resources such as Anki or other types of like review websites, other types of websites that have like, you know, practice questions, concept pages, you know, other textbooks are actually very helpful because like not all people learn the same way and not all professors like to present the information in the same way. So like let's say you can't like you you just can't understand like this one professor or like how they're presenting the information and you like need information from other sources. It's really important to go and seek out those other sources so that you can then understand the material. I think we did that a lot in undergrad too, but I think I did that a lot less in undergrad. Like I didn't need as many outside resources in undergrad Mm -hmm. aside from math, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember? I I just felt like in undergrad, I was drowning the entire time. (laughs) Like it was hard to put my head above water and think about the different teaching types. But I do think professors... 
presented information differently. Like some stuck with me more than other professors, but I didn't utilize outside resources really that much. So I think I'd agree with that. Yeah, definitely in undergrad, I like mostly use professors like lectures and like whatever practice questions. Like, of course, like I will say one thing is that outside resources were really helpful for me with my writing classes, my math classes, although the professor and like the textbook is really like what I focused on. Mm -hmm. And oh, I'm trying to remember like the classes that you basically like had to do research for and like senior design and and programming classes, Mm -hmm. I think, like Stack Exchange or Or things like that. Like you can look up solutions to like whatever problem you're having. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't like ever like a set outside resource that people like went to for help. So I will explain the outside resources. I realized I just like word vomited a bunch of outside resources and people probably don't know what they are. So Anki is basically like a scheduled slash time slash repetitive learning flashcard software that you can download to your laptop, your phone, or your like tablet. And basically like you can either make cards for it, like you can make flashcards for it, or you can like use other people's flashcards. So generally I use other people's flashcards as well as like this general medical school flashcard deck called On King. So someone made it and like put it online slash on Reddit. And a lot of people use it because it's really helpful for like those standardized tests. And obviously you need to keep studying for these standardized tests and like making sure you're like repeating the material like so that you can do well on your standardized exams. So it's basically like you get like an option of like one, two, three, four. So like if you didn't know the card at all, like you put like one and it shows it to you again in like one minute. If you like thought it was kind of a hard question or like a hard answer and you were like you know, it took you a long time to answer it and you weren't like confident about your answer, you kind of guessed, you can put like two. And then it shows you the question again in like, let's say like five minutes. If you thought it was a good question and, you know, you didn't have too hard of a time with it, you can put three. It shows you the question again in 10 minutes. And then if you put like four, then it was like really easy for you. It shows you the question again in like one day. So it's basically like you're repeating all these flashcards, like a bunch of times until like you really like solidify it in your brain and it goes like day after day so so once it goes to one day you know the next day let's say like you repeat the card again and you know you're like oh this is pretty good for me I remember it it might show it to you again in like two days after that so it's just a lot of like space repetition learning which I think is really helpful especially for specific topics in medical school that are more memorization based versus like logic or like knowledge based if that Mm. makes sense yeah is that free software can you just go online and download it yeah it's free if you use it on your laptop but it's not free if you download it on your phone or your tablet so it's like 25 Mm dollars flat rate if you download on your phone or your tablet but i don't have it on my phone or my tablet like i'm like it doesn't need the internet, so it's not like if I'm on my laptop oh. and I'm elsewhere, 
I can still do it, mm-hmm. you know? Gotcha. I think people do it on their phone or their tablet because they might find it easier to transport. But, like, again, a lot of people will do it on the train and things like that. But I tend not to because I feel like those environments don't necessarily lead me to, like, think the best. So I might, like, miss something. And I don't like seeing all those words on, like, a small screen anyway because I might, like, miss something. So, like, for me, like, looking at a card, I like to look at the whole card to make sure I understand the entire thing and, like, the explanation behind it. Mm -hmm. So I find that this works for me pretty well, but only for specific topics. Like, I'll do it for, like, anatomy or, like, histology, like, where you're just looking at, like, images of tissue. Like, I have to do it to basically, like, remember it. (laughs) (laughs) There are other things where, like, if we're doing biostats or if we're doing, like, I don't know, things that require, like, reasoning skills, I don't do it for because it's not really as, like, memorization-based. Yeah. So... For those questions, like, I don't find it that useful. Mm -hmm. And I personally, I think I know how to study for, like, reasoning-based questions because that's basically reasoning or logic-based questions because that's, like, basically what we did for almost all of undergrad anyway. That's what I was going to say. Maybe that's why resources like this didn't really help us because it was all logic-based, like, write out questions, problem yeah. solving there and then. I think that the only thing this would have helped for, helped with, maybe would have been like if you had a hard time memorizing equations. But again, equations are usually not like things that you're memorizing. They're yeah. things that you're like, you can like derive out anyway. Mm-hmm. So, Yes. And then I also use, sorry, <laughs> I also use like other websites like USMLERX, which is like basically like they provide us with a bunch of different questions and you can test yourself with questions. Um, Lecturio, same type of deal like Kaplan, you know, all things that you might have used either for, you know, standardized testing in high school, standardized testing for like graduate school, basically just like they're just like question banks and you those you do have to pay for and they are quite expensive so if your school has a discount or some sort of like i guess membership already that should be very helpful for you but if you don't have a membership already like i still think it's a good resource to use because sometimes you like just you just need to see some questions to see like how an entire question or entire like picture will look so that you can know like what kind of questions you might be given or you can put everything together basically Mm -hmm. like you can put a whole picture of like a patient in your mind so yes and I didn't really at the beginning of the school year I will say I didn't really use any outside resources I was like I'm gonna stick to lectures I'm gonna study the lectures I'm just gonna like read through the lectures and then do like some practice questions because that's what I knew and that's what we did in college but like adapting to different types of material and different types of study strategies and developing different study strategies for different types of materials even within the same course are 
like really important and very helpful for learning. Which brings me into my next point (laughs) is different types of studying for different types of exams. I kind of just went over that. So like my anatomy exam, like a practical exam, I might study for differently than like a regular, uh, a clinical exam. I might study for that differently from like basically like an academic exam. Like if I need to go in and like look at cadavers and do a bunch of repetition by like saying them out loud or repeat, like writing them over and over, then that's something that I'll have to do. So you just have to set aside time. And like, I think after you have your first few exams of each different type of exam, I think it's like easier to pinpoint exactly like what you need to do for each type of content. Um, And the last thing I will say that I've learned a lot more about is the cost of medical care. Like, I mean, I was aware that because we live in a society in which we don't have universal health care, that medical care was expensive. But I don't think I ever like conceptualized how expensive medical care is. So because like basically we're under 26 and we can still I don't know if you are, but I'm still on my parents health insurance right now. I'm assuming no, you're since not. I since I started working, I got my own health insurance, but I have my parents as my secondary, at least for the next few months. Yeah. Well, that's nice, too, to have like another form of coverage as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I just never conceptualized like how expensive medical care actually was. Like, you know, in college and, you know, when you go to the pharmacy, usually you'll be like, oh, like you think that, like, let's say, like, a flu shot or something, you think that that's, like, free. Because, like, usually, you know, you go to, like, CVS, give them your insurance card, and they're like, okay, we'll give you your flu shot, and you don't have to pay anything. But, like, we we were recently doing some research, and we were talking to, like, this physician that works in a student health clinic in a different university, and she was, like, talking about how they were trying to order flu shots, and different types of testing for their patients. And because their patients are like uninsured, so they need to provide charity care, so they need to provide it to them for free, the student health clinic needs to, you know, take the cost of all of this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, instead of charging to insurance and getting reimbursed. And they were looking at it, and she was like saying how it's like $50 for a flu shot, which like in my mind is like really expensive (laughs) for a Mm -hmm. flu shot. Like, that's more than I would envision a flu shot would cost. But since, you know, people have insurance, like, I guess. You don't think about it. You don't yeah, even you look don't, into it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're like, oh, I don't pay a copay. But but mm-hmm. in in the end, like, someone is paying for it. Like, your insurance is paying for it and you're paying for it via your premiums. So. Mm-hmm. And I also learned quite recently that, like, there, like, you put, um, you have, like, a baby in the NICU in the hospital, and let's say, like, the baby is in there for, like, a couple months, like, the hospital bill is, like, a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. Like, wow. I just don't know how people can afford to live mm-hmm. <laughs> with healthcare costs being so high. Yeah. So, yeah. People are, like, <laughs> literally going into debt for the rest of their life. Because of healthcare costs. 
So that's something that was like really eye-opening for me because that's just like, I feel like I haven't had that, that many like, you know, healthcare costs in my life, like big healthcare costs in my life. So I've never really thought about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that's all. Those aren't all of the things that I learned this year, but I will say those are like four big things that I learned in the past year in medical school. So let me hand it off to you, Shannon, for what you've learned while working for the past year. Thanks, Emma. Yeah, this has been an interesting episode to prepare for, and I've had some time to reflect on the past year of me working as a consulting engineer, and I I felt like I've learned a lot of skills that I didn't think I was going to learn. So the first one is the relationship between the consulting engineer and the client, and I think I've talked about this a little bit in past episodes, but I just... I knew consulting engineers worked for other people, but I didn't realize like how you have clients and you call them your clients. It feels kind of strange as an engineer having to do that and like having to work around their schedule and their standards and everything. So it's been interesting learning that relationship on how to be accommodating for them and like how to talk to them in professional settings too and something that goes along with that is writing a scope of work which uh to be honest I didn't really know existed until I started working but a scope of work is what it sounds like it's just descriptions of the work that you'll be doing for the client normally this will be on the fiscal year so this recently came up the fiscal year started October 1st and runs till the end of September September. And so for the scope of work, normally the consulting engineer will write it up and have like a meeting before they write it up with the client exactly figuring out what they want to do. And then the scope of work is divided by different numbers, essentially, like 100, 200, 300. And then that helps you to calculate the budget, which is another big piece that I've learned to do. So once you write up your scope of work, detailing what kind of projects you'll be working on, the assumptions for each of the tasks that you'll be doing, and the actual deliverables that you'll be giving to the client, then you can also calculate the budget. And yeah, this is where you have to kind of determine how many hours it's going to take you or how many hours it's going to take your team to do something. For example, stormwater sampling, like on average, how long does each person spend stormwater sampling and then calculating that into your budget and then also putting a cushion in there for the event that people get raises or inflation or whatnot. So that whole managing aspects and actually working with the budget and the numbers has been something that I've learned in this past year and just recently I I wrote up the scope of work and budget and calculated the budget for two of our projects (laughs) so I think that'll help me in the long run if I do want to become a project manager got it oh sorry I just have one question yeah. So does the client ever give you like a goal budget or do you just figure it out by yourself? For the projects I've worked on, normally they'll tell us what type of work they want us to do for them and then we calculate the budget and then we send it back and they review it. Yeah, normally we'll calculate and say this is what we can do the work for and then this is 
this is the budget. So that's kind of the way it goes for the scope of work and budget. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also interesting because if you have budgets over a certain amount if you're working for cities then you have to go through a whole approval process versus just the person the director of that department approving it has to like go all the way up (laughs) which I also learned so sometimes so in that case sometimes you do need to be below that number so you don't have to go all the way up and get that approved if you don't have the time or if it doesn't seem necessary The second thing that I've learned in the past year are the different paths in consulting. Uh, These these are at least the three different paths that my company highlights for all the entry-level engineers. And a lot of the time you end up doing two of the three. But the first one is going the very technical route, what we call subject matter expert. So this just means you're an expert in your specific field of work and a lot of the times you're narrowed down into something a little bit more niche. Right now I'm trying to learn as much as I can about all different aspects of environmental engineering, so stormwater, wastewater, drinking water, remediation, but for technical experts we have different groups so then you can be in the wastewater group specifically with process design let's say. And then you can be pulled into different projects to speak on that particular subject and share your knowledge of that. You can also become a project manager, which I talked about before, and this is pretty similar across the board to other different types of engineering, just managing projects and project managers. There's a complete scale of them. If you're starting out, you probably want to manage a lot smaller projects, but you can also be project manager for like a huge citywide program, um, which we have going on, on at my company too. The last different career path you can go into is becoming a client service manager. That's at least what we call it at my company, but also it's just the person who is interacting with the clients, working on getting new work for us. Also finding out what our clients want us to be doing or like figuring out what we could help them do, which is kind of interesting, like always bringing new ideas to the board and proposing them with our clients and really trying to bring in more work. And in this field, you tend to have a more broad experience. So this is like my boss. She has a lot of experience across the board in environmental engineering. So she can talk with different types of clients and propose different projects that we could help them with. So those, those I would say, are the three major career paths in consulting engineering for civil and environmental engineers. And a lot of the times you end up doing two of the three. So you can be technical and a PM, which is kind of what the route I'm thinking, or you can be a PM and client service manager. Yeah, so that was all new to me my first year of working. The next thing, which uh, seems kind of silly, but I've learned how to interact with my coworkers. I think there was just a lot of transition from academia to the working world that I had to get over socially at least because I'm a very private person and it was hard because you see your coworkers every single day and you are interacting with them in the office or we have weekly Monday morning connection calls where we have um, the municipal side of our team is on a call for about a half hour on Monday and we talk about our weekends and we talk about what we have what we're doing that week and I think just 
being able to share more personal parts of my life with my coworkers has been an adjustment, just being who I am and also not really enjoying small talk. So I really appreciate the bond that I've created with my coworkers over the past year and even like a few short weeks or months for some of the newer people that joined my company. The next two things are related specifically to the stormwater field and maybe just for the Pacific Northwest, but I've learned how small the stormwater engineering field is. A lot of the times you will work with people multiple times as they move around in their career, maybe at different companies, and you just tend to know the people at conferences. Like you have your little little stormwater group because most of the time we're like mixed in with the wastewater group too, which just seems to be a lot more massive. But stormwater right now at least is like a small group of engineers and scientists and hydrologists and you tend up working with you tend to work with the same people. Something related is the importance of permits. And I always thought that engineering was mainly design like that's what you learn in school you'll be doing problem solving design calculations but a lot of that design comes with a permit at least for environmental engineering so all municipalities or counties if you're discharging to a receiving water of the u.s so if your wastewater treatment plant is discharging to a river or same with stormwater if you're discharging to a river you need to have a permit to do so and Those permits are under the National Pollutant Elimination System, NPDES. For stormwater, you're under the Municipal Separate Storm Sewer System, and it just dictates what things that the county or city or whoever's discharging needs to do to meet compliance. So what sort of pollutants that you can have in your effluent for wastewater treatment plants, which then dictates design. One specific example here in Boise is phosphorus. So we have a lot of phosphorus naturally occurring in the soils, but also with all the agriculture in Idaho. And so there's a certain phosphorus limit, um, a pollutant load that you can discharge into the river. And then depending on that pollutant load, dictates how you design your wastewater treatment plant. So everything is tied together, the design and the permit. For wastewater, permits um, pretty much tell us how we need to be doing stormwater sampling. Like That's a requirement by the permit. There's also a, a bunch of different technical documents that you have to write and reports to make sure you stay in permit compliance. And you send those in to your state DEQ or equivalent each year for them to evaluate that. And then the last thing, which I recently added to this list, but this is probably the biggest thing that I've learned in the past year, and it's how to be more flexible in the work setting and how to problem solve on the spot. And I've come across this quite a few times. The major example I can give is for stormwater sampling. Just being who I am, I'm a a very structured person, and I like to have a time and a date when a project's due or I have a meeting to go to, and with stormwater sampling, everything is just thrown out into the air. Like, we 
especially in Boise because it's very hard to monitor the weather because of all the mountains in the area and we experience a lot of rain shadowing which means the mountains are blocking our storms but typically you know we are in communication with the Boise office of the National Weather Service before a stormwater sampling event and they're giving us live updates from their a dozen or so weather models on when that the rain when the rain is expected to start the intensity if it's going to start off strong and weaken or like have a slow start and strengthen and the expected precipitation amount for the entire storm and i'm not blaming the national weather service at all i have just learned how weather changes in an instance and a lot of the times when they give us a time that the rain's going to start it does not start at that time it starts like an hour or so after and even one time if it's thunderstorms it's even harder the thunderstorms one time came 12 hours after when they said it was going to start so learning how to be more flexible with work has been a big part and problem solving on the spot so if a storm changes last minute the let's say the precipitation total changes last minute then you have to problem solve and determine if you need to reset all of your monitoring stations now because it's a larger storm okay i think that's it for this episode our next episode we're going to talk about um, our goals for the next year so like what we want to work on the next year in the next year, what we want to learn more in the next year, and and some goals for this podcast as well. So that's going to be our second anniversary episode. And mm-hmm. so thank you for listening, guys. Hopefully we'll catch you again in the next episode. Yeah, we'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye. Bye.